Between 10 and 42% of travellers to any destination experience ill health, either while abroad or on returning home. And in travellers to tropical destinations, the figure can be as high as 70%. Most illnesses are self-limiting. However, between 12 and 54% of patients are ill, are Ill enough to seek medical attention and 1 to 6% are hospitalised. The presence of fever is associated with both severity of illness and hospital admission. The BMJ has recently published a clinical update education article about fever in the returning traveller and today we'll be discussing the article. I'm Kate Adlington, cl clinical editor at the BMJ and today I'm joined by two of the authors of that article. Dr Doug Fink, clinical research fellow and specialist registrar in infectious diseases at UCL and UCLH. Hi Doug. Hi Kate. Hi, thanks for joining us. And Dr. Victoria Johnston, Associate Professor in Clinical Epidemiology and Consultant in Infectious Diseases at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London and UCLH. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Kate. So thanks very much for both for joining us. Um, so perhaps we could start with a simple question. How do we define fever in a returning traveller? So for example, how recently does the traveller have to have been? Um, does it matter where they've been? I think what we see is most people who are going to present with a febrile illness will present early following their travel. But of course, some illnesses have a very long incubation period. So it is possible that the travel can be quite remote. Um, at our, our emergency walk-in clinic, where we see ill-returned travellers, we have a sort of cut-off of six months. But we will see people poten potentially at risk of malaria if they've presented within about 12 months of travel. Okay. And I think for the definition of returning travellers important simply because we're not talking about people who are just crossing borders necessarily so migrant health migrant populations obviously are a different group that aren't necessarily covered by our article we're talking about people who are based who are living uh, in the UK or indeed in, largely in northern hemisphere countries um, and then returning from abroad mm -hmm. which has implications for their their experience of mm -hmm. Health and disease, essentially. Um, so we're talking, about? we're talking about people who are either turning up at their GP, kind of locally, or in a specialist clinic or a walk-in clinic, um, who've been away recently, perhaps within the last six months, absolutely sort of abroad, and and really to any destination abroad. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I suppose based on the statistics that I've just quoted, actually, I was. It's quite surprising how common ill health can be um, in people sort of returning. Um, what are the most common causes of ill health? that you see in um, people returning from abroad? So, I mean, quite often it's just things like diarrheal illness or ubiquitous infections, respiratory tract infections, or even just non-specific skin complaints, which are very often very self-limiting illnesses. who so wouldn't necessarily always present to hospital um, or to primary care. Um, I think, the, the, as you'll see from the, the figures you read out, we've got quite wide ranges. And that actually really reflects the studies, the study designs and the study quality. Um, a lot of those, there's not that many um, papers looking at giving us good data about um, illness in, in returning travellers, people who are going abroad on holiday or whatever their, their reason for travel and coming back. And quite often it's done on post-travel questionnaires and depending on the timing of those, there's recall bias, etc. So um, that sort of accounts for that quite wide mm. variability in, mm. in the figures that we've presented in the paper. I think, again, an, an issue that we discuss in the article is that there is, under, there is an under-representation of primary and secondary non-specialist mm. care. So the data is heavily biased by specialist centres. Mm. And that's obviously because those centres make the effort to 
establish the diagnosis, but also purely because primary and secondary care often don't ask about travel history in the context of infection and may not make the same diagnosis mm-hmm. that specialists would. Mm. Um, and I think that that is an important point. Mm. And talking about data and kind of collecting these figures, um, you mentioned the GeoSentinel network in um, the article. Yes. What is that and how, I suppose, how is that collecting data? How is that helping to inform clinical practice? So the GeoSentinel network is a, um, an international network of uh, travel clinics. Um, so it's CDC which is um, the American uh, Centre for Disease Control. <laughs> um, and they they fund this data collection exercise. It's a surveillance exercise of clinics globally, um, looking at particularly at people who have, who have crossed borders and are presenting with ill health. Um, so the, the denominator for all of these studies are actually people who are presenting to travel clinics who are unwell. Um, it's quite. It's, an, it's a big network. There's uh, 60, 70 clinics uh, involved in it. Um, the um, and um, it, it's a useful network in that it has been used to highlight outbreaks as they are happening. Um, it's a relatively real time network. Um, so the data's submitted on about a monthly basis and they have certainly picked up outbreaks that are happening before it's necessarily been picked up by the local country so um there's like a sentinel mm. the canaries are being picked up by the geo sentinel network are there any examples kind of recent outbreaks that were kind of maybe have- so they picked up i think some zika cases where they hadn't been recognized to have been happening in that setting at that particular time but subsequently were um were found so that that sort of when there's a march of a new infection yeah. globally so zika being the most um uh, publicized one of late um then certainly that sort of thing can get picked up through the g sentinel network and and i think also uh, autochthonous transmission of not normally endemic infections, particularly arboviruses. Mm. So chikungunya mm-hmm. is a good example of that. I think they were some of the first groups to pick up that that was being transmitted by mosquitoes mm. actually in Italy and mm-hmm. south of France, mm-hmm. as opposed to being in the Caribbean. Mm. So it, 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 yeah, as as, as uh, Vicky says, it's it's a really useful tool for that. Mm. I think another another online. Uh, apparatus that's available to all clinicians that is also real time is the ProMed mail service and again what's interesting about that is it captures not just specialist center or even healthcare reported data but actually some just online media reports Mm. and and actually accesses social media data Mm. from about 180 countries and then that gets reviewed by specialists who produce a report so I think that probably isn't as high quality data necessarily and certainly um, lacks some rigor but again is very useful for getting a sense of a trend mm. and a sensitive tool it's quite sensitive useful tool, to yeah. find out what's happening um, certainly we use it yeah clinically mm. um, and but both of those you discussed probably are slightly limited by the fact that they're possibly not picking up as much data from kind of primary care as they are yes. um, yeah a second pair. I mean, in th- in in theory, I say in theory, in practice as well. But the, I mean, GeoSentinel do have public health partners that they work with, and as as Vicky said, it's funded by the public, the major public health organisation in the states. Mm. Um, but I'm not familiar with exactly how much 
to and fro there are with those networks so mm. i think in the future there's definitely a role probably for expanding mm. better reporting in as we said non-specialist centers that's mm. that needs to be a priority that we mention as one of the goals mm. i guess in our yeah. unmet unmet needs so sort of a big part of the article is looking at the kind of process of when after someone has presented with fever having recently returned kind of what steps you should go through to um you know both assess risk and um sort of start clinical management um and i suppose um sort of taking back to start so thinking about say someone is presenting in primary care kind of what what basic assessments should um you know clinicians in that setting be thinking about and when should they be thinking about you know referring on to secondary care um, i think in people presenting with a febrile illness, the first thing is to ask about travel. <laughs> because if you don't ask, then you're not going to know. And that's when delays happening in diagnoses. And then I think after that, if, they, if they've travelled to a malaria endemic area, which for all intents and purposes should just be considered as to anywhere tropical, um, really then they need to be assessed. And that's partly because, yes, a malaria film can get done in primary care, you don't get an answer straight away and you really need to know that answer that day. So if a sample sent on a Friday from primary care and the patient's sent home then and they don't pick up the answer that this is malaria until the following week, then that's way too late and who knows what could have happened in that time period. Um, so I think the, you know, the really what if, a, if there is a history of travel in somebody who's presenting with a febrile illness, then I think those patients should be reviewed or at least discussed with an infection team yeah and, and I, th I think in it, the other sort of triage component that we have in the article which we may come on to discuss is the challenge of recognizing sepsis or cosmopolitan mm. infection which is very difficult but i think if you have someone who is febrile returning from abroad you, you should definitely have that on your radar yeah. so be i guess we'll have a lower threshold perhaps of yeah. thinking about um, sepsis and infection acquired, acquired abroad. So you've started to touch on there those kind of three clear phases of assessment that you that are presented in the article and in, in the infographic. So starting with um, triage, then isolation, and then a travel risk assessment. So do you want to kind of explain a little bit more, describe a little bit more what the important points are in each of those steps? So, I mean, so the triage is asking about fever and the, and the reason we put up sort of the sepsis thing so early is that, you know, we need is really to trigger people to continue to think for anybody presenting with what's suspected infection, you need to evaluate sepsis and you need to do it early. And then there's obviously separate sepsis pathways that different healthcare providers will have. In terms of thinking the infection control aspect, I mean, the healthcare workers are sort of the canaries in this. And there are lots of examples of how people with infection have hit a healthcare system. And then it's only once healthcare workers have gone down with that infection that an outbreak has been appreciated. Um, and, you know, as a general rule, I think we just need to be thinking, you know, we've just had a flu outbreak at the moment. Uh, it's winter, it's been a high number of flu cases. We need to be thinking about infection control early in that triage process. So part of asking the travel history and that infection control sort of is separated in our algorithm because we have to, mm. but part of it goes sort of hand in hand. Um, and when we come to think of sort of the, the travel history, it really comes down to, you know, who is that person? Where have they been? When were they there? And what did they do there? Mm. Um, 
the 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 aspects that are highlighted in the infographic then relate to this sort of very, very rare risk of somebody coming with a viral hemorrhagic fever and the incredibly rare risk of somebody presenting with sort of a, a, um, a novel influenza or MERS, for instance. So these are like trying to pick the needles out of the haystack, <laughs> but we still need to think about them. But actually, if you take back a step and think, OK, somebody's coming with a respiratory infection, well, they should have a mask on and we should be isolating them regardless of those subsequent risks. Um, and with viral hemorrhagic fevers, I mean, we have a handful of cases that get imported into the UK over a very, very long period of time. Um, and it really often highlights this, that it's where that person's been is the key, the key thing that should trigger, OK, I need to think about this possibility. Because I, I think that's right. I think a lot of people are biased towards thinking about the esoteric and the rare when it comes to tropical medicine. Inevitably, those are serious but rare pathogens. If you look at mortality from the geosentinel data, a third of the patients who died from infection that was presumed to be travel-related uh, was due to malaria, but probably half of the cases who died was because of sepsis and cosmopolitan infection. So I think we were what we feel is maybe missing historically from the assessment of people who have travelled potentially to exotic locations is missing those very simple, maybe not simple, but those very important fundamental principles of recognising infection and managing it appropriately in both a individual and then obviously a public health context. And do you think there is that temptation? Obviously people you know, recognise fever returning traveller, starting to think kind of along diagnostic lines, thinking about where investigations to send, that kind of quite, I suppose, sort of clinically more um, satisfying diagnostic yeah. pathway rather than thinking those kind of very basic, you know, do we need to isolate, you know, exactly. what are the immediate risks? I mean, risks? just to extend my point there as well, mm. I mean, we... We, we have a service, obviously, at the Hospital of Tropical Diseases where we take national phone calls, and we're always very happy to discuss on the phone early um, so that we can make sensible decisions early. But a lot of the diagnoses that we've alluded to already are made on the basis of just good, rigorous microbiology and vi virology samples. It's actually relatively rare, even in our service, that we need to think very hard about specialist tests. Mm. Um, but often the person on the other end of the phone has been biased towards thinking about something much much less common, much more tropical. And so part of our responsibility is about, I guess, putting people down the right pathway as much as anything else. Yeah. You, we touched on malaria before, and in the article you mentioned sort of 5 to 29% of people presenting to specialist clinics with uh, fever are found to um, actually have malaria as a diagnosis. How can clinicians sort of make sure that they don't, forget malaria and you touched on it before saying actually if you're you know think to send a test but if you're thinking to send a test really you should be involving probably special services is ringing speaking to people making sure that those results are, are, are picked up urgently but how do you make sure that yeah that as a diagnosis is investigated appropriately so i think that i think just awareness that that um malaria is a is a you know serious illness um that uh, and and therefore just thinking about it and testing for it is the, is the key thing. Um, in terms of sort of the uh, so we, when we say if we look at the at the UK national audit of malaria deaths, one of the key things of the reasons people die is because of delays in getting to healthcare. 
um, and getting into, into appropriate sort of secondary health care. So that might be because people don't volunteer their travel history. It might be because they're not asked about it. It might be because people don't think to do the malaria test. But the, 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 key, the key thing is that that is a delay in happening. It is happening and that's, those delays lead to deaths. And, you know, mortality in, a, in, the, U, in the UK, and it's the same pretty much if you look at other um, uh, Western settings, is about sort of 1%-ish. Um, and that's mortality from Plasmodium falciparum. And if this is, a, a, a generally speaking, a younger population, because they're people who have travelled to then come back again. And obviously we see an increasing older traveller, but they're generally a relatively fit population. So if you're then looking at 1% mortality, that's... That's a reasonable mortality. So I think it's just thinking, could this patient have malaria and doing a test? Because the tests are very easy to do. I mean, most labs will do a rapid diagnostic test and that's very sensitive, particularly for Plasmodium falciparum. Um, and then, but really should follow up with, with blood films. Mm. Um, and if the labs aren't used to doing blood films, they will, they will be able to prepare them. But the sample, the, the, we're always happy to have films sent to us at the, at the Hospital of Tropical Diseases to be able to verify um, parasitemias. Um, and we're always happy to discuss any cases. I, th- I think on an individual level in terms of uh, clinical assessment also, I think a history of fever or febrile type symptoms is important. Although the patient may not be febrile in front of you, Malaria is yeah. a, a one, another one of those great dissemblers. It has sort of protein, multiple, diverse clinical manifestations. So something that someone presumes to be a diarrheal illness or even a respiratory illness, actually in the context of history of fever and appropriate travel risk, should you need to exclude that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that, I think that's an interesting learning point as well. So have a broad perception of how it can manifest in the individual. I think coming back to the sort of the malaria assessment, um, that as you can see sort of in the infographic, what we, we talk about is various criteria for considering um, severe malaria um, and the, the sort of the 10%, which is like the WHO guidelines. But um, what we need to remember is that we are in a non-endemic setting and that actually we do see complications in patients with far lower parasitemias. And certainly there's sort of more consensus in the UK that we take a sort of 2% level of parasitemia and if it's above that we'd certainly consider treating somebody as severe infection um, and I think the people who are at risk of the sort of the comorbidities as well is A, anyone with malaria but B, if they've got other comorbidities going along with that then it is potentially going to put them at more risk of developing renal failure or ARDS or um, uh, cerebral malaria. It, it was interesting because well, you discussed the fact that people who are travelling back to their country of origin um, are often at the highest risk of infections and partly perhaps because they are under the perception that they are at lower risk because, you know, um, because it is a country of origin, perhaps they have had infections there before, perhaps presume a level of, um, you know, Im- immunity. Um, so what, what do we know about that risk from the evidence and, and I suppose how can you advise people about that? So we know migrants who've been brought up in a malaria endemic area, they have, they develop immunity, so they survive their childhood <laughs> where most of the malaria deaths happen um, and then they develop an immunity. But to maintain that level of immunity, you need to be constantly being exposed to 
to malaria. And of course, when people then travel outside a malaria endemic setting, then they will lose they lose that immunity um, over a period of who six, 12 months, we don't really know, but they lose that immunity. Um, and then when they travel back in their people's heads, they're like, well, I'm immune to malaria, but actually they travel back and they're no longer immune to malaria and they can contract malaria. What we do also recognise is that they probably have a degree of semi-immunity left. So they're um, they're less likely to get the severe complications, um, but they still do happen. And we've still had, you know, I can still na- you know, say a number of cases I've had traveller, um, uh, people visiting family and relatives who have gone down and had complications of malaria. Um, but there certainly seems to be a degree of semi-immunity left. Um, and I think the other thing about sort of this visiting family and relatives group, this VFR group that we talk about, is that they um, are less likely to think about getting chemoprophylaxis, for instance, for malaria. So that will put them at, at increased risk when travelling. I mean, generally speaking, probably not enough people get pre-travel risk assessment in any mm, event. So again, yeah. geosentinel data will say it'd be, be between 50 and 60% of those who return with illness did not consult. Mm. Um, that's even lower for people who are visiting friends and relatives, i.e. returning to what they perceive to be their safe home environment. It can be as low as 20% or less. Mm. And there are simple interventions that probably that population could take to reduce risk, specifically of malaria and also other infections. And as sort of Vicky alluded to there, there's probably also lower rates of vaccination in that population too, for, for the same reason. Yeah. And on that point, what advice would you give to either primary care clinicians or, or people themselves about what advice they can seek, where they can seek advice, what vaccines they should consider, what um, prophylaxis they should consider before travelling? So in Public Health England, there's, there's national malaria advice, prophylaxis advice, um, which is updated regularly. And um, that's a primary source to go to regarding prophylaxis. Um, the, they have access to NAFNAC, which is a national travel health advice uh, line, um, which certainly in the UK, healthcare workers can phone and get advice on the more complicated travellers. Um, and then obviously there are travel clinics for the more complicated um focusing a bit more on the complicated travellers so HTD we have a pre-travel clinic where um, complex patients so people with comorbidities are actually commissioned by NHS England Um, but anybody can go as a sort of walk-in not walk-in sorry they need to phone up and book an appointment but anyone can book an appointment at the travel clinic you mentioned and raised the issue of antimicrobial resistance in the article, which is obviously kind of a, a huge area that there has been lots of discussions sort of public around. Um, how much of a problem is this? And specifically, I was interested, it sort of it talks about um, considering rectal swab screening, particularly in people who've travelled to quite sort of large range of areas, so Africa, Asia or Middle East. Um is, is this sort of a change in practice? Is this something that is actually happening in reality? Um, so I think there's a, um, it's, it's an increasing awareness about the role of, um, antimic- of travel and antimicrobial resistance. Um, and particularly if people have been hospitalised overseas um, where there are incredibly high levels of gram-negative antibiotic resistance. And that includes within, say, the Mediterranean areas. 
um, if you look at maps of anti of gram negative resistance, then you see sort of the UK, the north of Europe is all green, and you move down towards the Mediterranean, and it's very red, and Eastern Europe it's very red. Um, so I think this is a growing realization that this is a a, um, a route of potential transmission into um, uh, settings that don't have so much antimicrobial resistance. And as a and, and when you look at them, there's various studies that have looked at uh, travellers and, and identified um, relatively high um, prevalence of uh, ESBL and um, carbapenem resistant organisms. Um, so there's been a move more recently for guidelines to start recommending swabbing individuals, and it is rectal swabs, looking to see if they're colonised with resistant organisms. Um, and certainly within our setting, we if people have been hospitalised overseas, then absolutely everybody should be swabbed on coming into the hospital and should be isolated until those swabs come back as negative. But it's interesting that, as you said, at the moment we're based on these very broad scope guidelines. Yeah. And I mean, as Vicky summarised there neatly, we know that there are high rates of these organisms in parts of the world where antibiotic stewardship is less rigorous. We know that travellers who go to these parts of the world who left their home country without carriage do return with high rates, you know, as high as 50% if you're looking at ESBLs and, as we've said, slightly lower but significantly high rates of carbapenem resistance. And the gap in knowledge really is that we don't know what impact those people have on, I guess, the uh, AMR we see in the hospitals in the UK or in other countries. We don't know the burden of travel-related antimicrobial resistance. So at the moment, the guidelines are pretty non-specific. Yeah. Mm. So if you look at the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control and you look at the uh, Centre for Disease Control in the States, they really do not come down firmly. They say it probably is a good idea, but ultimately it comes down to the discretion of the local infection services. And I think that's exactly... At the moment, what we want to encourage is just a prompt, essentially, to have that local discussion, because certainly all trusts will isolate their carbapenem-resistant uh, organism carriers in the, in the hospital. But I'm absolutely sure we, we, we don't really know the true denominator. And I suppose that that's... Um more cause for the, the importance of a, a good travel history in patients, it, regardless of even if they're you know not presenting with fever fever yes. after re, 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 returning recently, you know even looking back at their travel yeah. history over the last few years, wh at whatever point they yeah. present to hospital, if they've if they've had a stay in hospital, I mean these you know, are these are the, these are studies past. that need to happen. Yeah. Mm. We don't we we have a sense of how long carriage is, but we don't know, mm. uh, and we have a sense that it obviously could be a player in in clinical presentations that we see but we we really don't know mm. uh, and Absolutely. we don't know the impact in the I guess the health economics yeah. of the screening protocols and what we're talking about really is carriage here yeah. and there's obviously a difference between carriage and infection so if you've got a fever then we're thinking more in the infection but actually as you say you know many people get transferred back to the UK because of surgical procedures or other illnesses that are nothing to do with infection but if they've been in a hospital setting overseas, then could well be colonised and would still should be screened and isolated. And and yet probably people are more, you know, might ask about a travel history if someone's presenting in the context of infection, but would be less likely yeah. to if they're presenting with another. Yeah, and it's a major issue. it's a major challenge for the epidemiology because 
there's no doubt that like people will probably not be captured if you just say have you travelled recently mm. at, at a later point in their in their hospital journey mm. it's important to I think ask early mm-hmm. and I think also just kind of drawing on the isolation procedures which obviously often you know you you would be taking advice from your local infection control team when kind of assessing a person um, but. Um, and in there, you're kind of thinking about contact, um, droplet airborne, and enhanced um, sort of methods of isolation. How might you assess someone about what would be appropriate for them? I think generally speaking, so any respiratory symptoms, think respiratory isolation. I mean, the what we also have to think about is the reality of the on-the-ground situation and, you know, are there side rooms or you know is it possible to isolate somebody in an, in, in an ED department um, I mean given the flow going through an ED department it may not always be possible but even then just giving the patient a surgical mask to put on um, that's been you know proven to be a very good infection control it's about cough hygiene mm. um, but as for preventing onward transmission of, of flu or TB it's a good at least measure that we can do even if you don't have that ability to create a side room to isolate a patient. I suppose there's something there because I'm thinking as well about sort of maybe a, um, a clinician seeing someone in primary care and thinking actually I want this person to be assessed in a secondary but there's you know they're going to have to travel there they'll they're likely going to have to sit and wait in a waiting area so there's something about kind of the communication with that secondary care team so saying actually I'm worried about this patient I think that they should be isolated on arrival but also maybe sharing that concern with the person and saying you know actually it's important that you wear a mask you know for this period of time or while you're waiting and or you know it's important try and you know not sort of maybe have contact or have close contact with you know family or or whoever during that period and I think if there if if a GP genuinely has concern that somebody could have a viral hemorrhagic fever or could have a like MERS um, uh, or avian influenza um then actually, even at that point, they need to isolate that person within their GP surgery and then they need to be speaking to infectious diseases and public health because there then will be um, protocols that are to put into place for how that patient should be managed, how that patient should be transferred for assessment. So if, if they did happen to think, oh, I'm a bit worried about this, then I would phone and, and discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think that's relatively clear from the algorithm. That's obviously... The triage maybe suggests when you should think about sending someone to hospital, but obviously if you make the, um, I guess the preliminary diagnosis that they may have a emerging infectious disease or an outbreak related illness, then the isolation protocol, the enhanced isolation, doesn't necessarily have to be in secondary care. Mm. Um, we haven't put that caveat there, but obviously there are guidelines that you follow, which we don't have the space (laughs) (laughs) another article maybe (laughs) great okay thank you very much both for joining us today Um, and if listeners want to see either of those articles then you can find the clinical update on fever and the returning traveller online at bmj.com along with all our other education articles and uh, we'll be back soon with more education podcasts and you can find all our previous podcasts from the BMJ on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts usually. So just say thank you very much and goodbye to Vicky and Doug. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having us. Okay, and thanks very much for listening and bye for now.